Welcome to The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists, examining timely psychological trends and excellence in clinical practice. I'm Dr. Samuel Lesgarten, and I'm thrilled to have Dr. Rory Fund with us today. Rory is a postdoctoral fellow at the Center on Alcohol, Substance Use, and Addictions at the University of New Mexico, and his research on gambling disorder is the focus of today's episode. He's also happened to publish a couple times in the National Register's Journal of Health Service Psychology. Dr. Fund, thank you so much for being with us here today and welcome to the program. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. Rory, as soon as I saw your research in the Journal of Health Service Psychology, I was immediately like, I've got to talk to this person. Gambling behaviors have been something that I've been wrestling with and and dealing with in my clinical work for years. And to speak to somebody that's been invested and and working on this on the research angle was so important to me. I want to kind of give some context of why this felt important too. When I grew up, I don't know about you, Rory, but ESPN was just blanketing their channels, like every single one seemed to be dedicating massive amounts of airtime to the World Series of Poker, which was this filmed and and sometimes live televised event for ESPN where they treated poker like a sport and they had the players and they showed the cards. And for many people, including me, I, I was swept up in this rush of like gambling for the first time and it was being published everywhere through this medium. And now as a health service psychologist, helping folks who are struggling sometimes with gambling, I'm wondering if you can walk me through the assessment process as you see it. You know, what are we paying an attention to when someone walks through the door? How do we know when gambling has become a problem? Yeah, that's really the critical question here, because as psychologists, we will undoubtedly meet clients who gamble, just like we will undoubtedly meet clients who drink alcohol, but not all those people will need treatment for gambling or alcohol use. If we think about gambling on a continuum, most people who gamble will do so without any kind of impairment at all. Uh, This is a common recreational activity in the United States. And I think in 2015, the survey data said 75% of adults in the United States will place at least one bet in the past year. So this is a very common behavior for people. But again, not all people are going to need treatment for the actual gambling behavior. So the key is, how do we understand what an impairment is? And when I say impairment at the broadest level, what we're trying to find is how the gambling affects their functioning in different areas of their life. With gambling behavior, probably the first impairment that comes to mind for people is financial impairment. Right, so right. the gambling could be causing losses in money to where the person can't pay rent, their mortgage, mm-hmm. other bills, they can't feed themselves. They might be going without a home. They might file for bankruptcy. But for some people, this isn't a problem especially for those who are extremely wealthy. Financial isn't really their concern. Mm -hmm. And impairment could be things like social consequences, like they can't concentrate at work or they get in trouble at work because they're gambling online. They could have an argument with their significant other about gambling. And 
sometimes in the most severe cases, we see legal difficulties like bankruptcy, maybe filing multiple times, and oftentimes mental health difficulties come with this too. So some type of depression or anxiety are the most common, and we want to assess for those as well. You know, as you're talking through this, I, I can't help but think, you know, even before our interview started, we were we were talking a little bit about inside a casino or outside of a casino, how that might change the behavior and some of the feelings and even our ability to diagnose this or, or figure out that there is problematic behavior here. Yeah, again, we, we really want to understand in context, what is this behavior? So the person who's gambling at a casino could really look a lot different from someone who's gambling alone online. But if you think about those behaviors in context, what is the function of gambling for those two different people. Someone who's gambling at home online might be doing it to escape other kinds of problems, things that really aren't going so well in their lives that they really wish could be improved. Actually, the same thing can go for a casino gambler that I go to really blow off steam and forget about my day. But trying to understand what is the function that gambling is serving for someone uh, is really very important. Yeah, and I think that uh, you're, you're on to something here that I think is important for me and hopefully for listeners too. You know, whenever I'm working with someone that's struggling with some sort of behavior, I, I think about that motivational interviewing perspective. And I, I got to imagine when you talk about functioning, like that there are some things that that person gets out of the behavior. And I'm wondering what you've noticed in your interviews and, and work with clients or patients. Mm-hmm question I ask of every single gambler I've worked with is, what do you like about it? Right. And some of the common things are, it's exciting. I win money. Uh, I get to go spend time with my family or friends. And I also ask them, what don't you like? And mm-hmm. some of the common answers are, I lose a lot of money. Long-term, it, it really hurts me and my family. We, we get into arguments over this trying to understand all those sides of the perspective um, using a framework like motivational interviewing can be very helpful to elicit this very balanced type of perspective on what are all the ways in which gambling is influencing your life, positive and negative. Right, right. I get a kind of a sensation that we're already kind of going here. So I wonder if we might transition naturally to thinking about what treatment might look like. You know, I always think about when I'm having an intake and and even the first couple sessions with a new client, what is happening here? What's the scope of the concern and getting a really thorough assessment? Because without that, without what you're talking about and an understanding of what's happening and the behaviors there, we can't know what to do next. And so I am wondering, after we do have a better understanding of the scope of the behavior, what can treatment look like? Mm-hmm. So after we do a clinical interview, we can supplement with some assessments. In our article, we talk about uh, several different ones, but some that I'd like to highlight that can really be helpful for informing treatment uh, are the timeline follow-back gives a very rich set of data for us. We can look at patterns in clients' gambling behavior over time. So we will use a calendar to prompt them on different days of the week and in different months over, we really try to get as much data as possible, but I typically encourage people to go back at least three to six months if they can do that. 
luckily with some forms of gambling, it's very easy to retrieve uh, the mm-hmm. financial information through bank statements or the casino, even right. online records from some of the online platforms where you can gamble will provide these for you. And the client can actually go and start to reflect on how frequently they gambled over these months, how much they gambled, and sitting down with them collaboratively, we can actually find patterns. What days of the week were you gambling? Why do you think it was only on Fridays and Saturdays? And it's amazing to see the clients really put together that, oh, that's that's when I have all my free time or that's when I'm off work. And we can start to individualize plans just from this assessment. But all that aside, looking at really the best available research, it's really right now sitting with cognitive behavioral therapy that's oftentimes informed with some motivational interviewing style. So a lot of what is done is basically trying to target thoughts and behaviors that maintain gambling behavior. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. Now, I'm, I'm thinking, too, with any sort of problematic behavior, it can be difficult to stop. And that's, that's simplistically put, you know. I'm kind of wondering what barriers might get in the way of people being able to reduce their use or cease their use. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's very difficult to change. And one of the first things I, I like to do in treatment is asking the client, what's your goal? What are you hoping to do? Right. And typically people come between one of two things. One is to stop altogether and the other is to moderate or cut back in some way. So they might try to do things like cut back how often they go, how much they spend on gambling and really giving the client the power to decide this and navigate and create their own treatment is one way to get your foot in the door to start to chip away. After that, there are some other challenges like thoughts about luck and what gambling is. With a lot of these folks, what we see in their research is that many of them have beliefs about luck that really aren't in reality. So believing that you have some special ability or power to change the odds of the game or a special way that you gamble that can increase the odds of winning. Of course, we don't know this to be true, but we want to get the client to articulate these things so that we can walk through it together and start to chip away at these thoughts that are really maintaining the behavior over time. Right. Oh, gosh, you got me curious, though, Rory. How do you challenge a belief like that or a thought like that in regards to luck with games of chance? And my gosh, I'm also thinking, wouldn't it even be harder still with games like poker, where there is some level of like stats and skill mixed in with chance, like how, how do we do the challenging in regards to this? There's there's many ways uh, to do it. And uh, just like you said, it, it's kind of difficult because there's actually this split between games of chance and games of skill. Mm-hmm. And there's a few games of skill that people will say, well, this is a game of skill. It, it's not up to chance. Some of the useful ways to challenge are actually just the clients reflecting on things like that timeline follow back calendar. You show them six months worth of gambling losses and a lot of them, you don't even have to challenge. They'll just say, whoa, I've been doing this for six months and my skill shows that I've lost thousands or tens of thousands of dollars. Maybe this isn't so skillful after all. So using just the data that they provide is often a good way for us to get our foot in the door. 
Oh, that's really helpful to know. And, and, and I can hear the like collaborative nature of the treatment process in that too. As we're talking today, I can't help but, but think we're in two different time zones, the two of us, and we're recording over the internet and we're working from home largely these days, even in professional practice. And it's consistent even with new research that's been published by Dr. Morgan Sammons and colleagues in the Journal of Health Service Psychology, which suggests that providers are using technology in their service delivery more than ever before. And that means that our clients are online, likely more than ever before too. And it's making me think about how we see this transition impacting gambling behaviors or potential disorders. Does this put people at greater risk because they're at home more? How do you see this? Yeah, this is a really new emerging area in the research and a lot of it is new. Where it's going is thinking about the context of COVID for people that people who were previously gambling in casinos are now shifting to online platforms or gambling even more online than they were, now that maybe they're not going into work. Again, the research is just starting to emerge, but overall, what we've actually seen is that due to the closure of casinos and them following the public health guidelines, there's actually a decrease overall in people's oh, wow. gambling behavior. But what we see is that people who are on the high severity of experiencing gambling disorder symptoms have actually migrated online and are potentially gambling at a more problematic rate. Again, that's kind of just the new emerging research, but um, overall there's a decrease, but for those who are experiencing severe problems, it's probably getting them a little bit worse. As we talk about the growth in gambling behaviors in online contexts, it also makes me curious to know about the, the broader landscape. What's happening across the United States in regards to gambling behaviors? Mm -hmm. So gambling is actually increasing in terms of the number of opportunities that are available for people to gamble legally. So not only are more states legalizing gambling, but there are new ways to gamble legally. In 2018, the Supreme Court actually ruled that states could decide on the legality of sports gambling. And prior to that, Nevada was the only state where you could gamble legally on sports. And since that Supreme Court ruling, I think the last time I counted was at least 15 states had legalized sports gambling. So the opportunities are growing for people to gamble. And the concern here is that the more opportunities the more problems that it might produce. Right now, the research is mixed on that. There's really not a conclusive answer one way or the other, but that is our concern, that with more opportunities, people will start to have more problems with gambling behavior. Right. And as that expansion occurs across the, the states, are you noticing changes in how governments are treating gambling behaviors or offering treatment? It's actually a, a big problem right now. And one of the really troubling findings from the research is that few people are seeking gambling treatment. So it's possible that they don't recognize there's a problem. But for those that do, there aren't really many options for them to connect to. Um, when I was doing a lot of work in Tennessee, we would often have people call us from all over the United States to see if we could recommend a provider for them. There's really not a lot of knowledge about 
gambling. It's kind of the new kid on the block, so to speak, for addiction treatment. And many times these folks are lumped in with other care. So in a drug and alcohol facility, and um, what we see is the culture is a little bit different that maybe some of the people who use substances don't really see people who gamble as having an addiction. Um, so it's very important for us to carve out a piece of treatment for gamblers that's specific, focused on them, and really giving them the attention that the problem does deserve. All patients deserve some kind of treatment, and uh, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of options. Rory, I so appreciate hearing your expertise and getting a better understanding of the both the assessment process, but also what does treatment look like? I think that this is so valuable when we look at the the, the scope of our podcast here of thinking about the, the clinical needs. In the last few moments of our podcast, I want to transition to talking to your experience being an early career psychologist and how you got connected with the National Register. Absolutely. Uh, I think the most important part for me was uh, good mentors. Um, my undergraduate mentor, <laughs> it's hard to even believe that it's been so long, but um, John Norcross was instrumental in connecting me to the National Register. And I still remember going to conferences with him and stopping by the desk for all the swag that they would give out there. <laughs> I right, really right. appreciated that. So having a good mentor and um, just being shown along the way of um, what really good clinical practice is like, and it's helped connect me to the National Register. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, we're glad to have you and glad to have you on this program. I am so thankful for your time today, your expertise, and being able to learn, like I said, about this, this field of assessment, the treatment, but also this evolution of care as things move online. And we are at a distance, at least these days. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Absolutely. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. I'm Dr. Samuel Lustgarten, and this has been The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. As a reminder, all episodes provide general information for discussion purposes only and don't serve as formal clinical advice or continuing education. If you're interested in hearing more about problematic internet gaming behaviors, be sure to check out a previous episode with Dr. Anthony Bean as well. Mm-hmm.